Hi, this is Esti, host of the Friday A Public Affair. I hope you help us by contributing to WORT and you can also subscribe to the podcast. Bye. Six foot six above sea level I grab the mic because I like to take you to another mental level Low power frequency radio modulation The big sound from underground another pirate station We bring the truth No to change life. without struggle No one in power ain't giving up nothing No change without struggle No one in power W-O-R-T, 89.9 FM, listener-sponsored community radio, Madison, Wisconsin. And hello, welcome to A Public Affair. I am Esti Dinor. I gotta tell you, yesterday as I was getting ready to go have some turkey and sides, I was thinking about the children who are in foster care and about their families um, who don't have their kids and how they were doing on this uh, Thanksgiving Day. And the reason I was thinking about that was that I was... I had been preparing for our show today, which is about a book titled Torn Apart, How the Child Welfare System Destroys Black Families and How Abolition Can Build a Safer World. We have with us today the uh, author. She is Dorothy E. Roberts, an American sociologist, law professor, and social justice advocate. She is the Penn Integrates Knowledge Professor, George A. Weiss University Professor, and inaugural Raymond Pace and Sadie Tanner Mossel Alexander Professor of Civil Rights at the University of Pennsylvania. She is also the author of full books, and the latest one is Torn Apart. Dorothy... Thank you so much for joining us today. Oh, thanks so much, Esty. It's really a delight to be on your program. Thank you. I appreciate you. And, you know, we have talked quite a bit on this show about uh, the brutal policy of, of the Trump administration of separating children from their families at the border. And we actually will return back to it soon. There's another book that I want to discuss that is about that. But... Um, that, as you tell us, is not really a new policy. This is um, something that has been happening every day in the United States and has for a long time. And uh, it has to do with black and uh, native families and, and other um, people of color and a little bit white people. Tell us about that. Tell us about the um, the the just the consistency of this policy in in this country. Yeah, you're absolutely right that there was a big outcry, as there should have been, over the Trump administration's policy of intensifying family separation at the border. And it was a good thing that many people across the nation noted how traumatic it is to take children away from their families, both for the children and their family caregivers, but also really importantly, how the government can use child removal as a political weapon against marginalized groups uh, for political reasons, because it's a form of terror. And that was wonderful. Uh, we should pay attention to that. But what got overlooked largely by the media and experts was the way in which this very same weapon of child removal is used every day, especially in black communities, uh, in native or indigenous communities, and also among impoverished and working class white people, though not to the same degree. And so this is a system that in, accuses family caregivers, mainly for reasons of poverty. The main reason why families are accused of child maltreatment is simply because they don't have the resources to take care of their children, lacking housing, clothing, adequate food, adequate education or healthcare. 
Uh, and then their families are investigated intensively. Uh, and I mean home searches, strip searches of children looking for evidence of abuse and neglect, uh, looking into every aspect of their private lives. And uh, then many of them have their children taken from them. So uh, go ahead. Mm -hmm. Yeah, go. And put into a very dangerous foster system. Uh, and many also have their legal relationships permanently severed. And this goes on and has gone on for decades in the United States. I argue the roots of it go all the way back to slavery and settler colonialism. But the modern child welfare system has been in place for decades. And it has always functioned based on the threat of taking children away and is an extremely traumatizing system that is used, I'd say, as a weapon against the most marginalized communities. Yeah, so you say it is a political weapon, and you also say that um, the child welfare system, which we all want children to be protected, right? We don't want children to be abused at home. Uh, but you say that it's designed not to protect children from abuse, but to control black families. So um, convince us that. Okay. Uh, okay. Well, so one thing to remember is that the vast majority of children who are taken from their homes are not taken on grounds of physical or sexual abuse. They're taken because of neglect. And states define neglect basically as the conditions of poverty, failing to provide the resources that children need. And so I think most Americans have a false view of what this system does. They think it's a system that protects children from extreme forms of abuse when its main function is to regulate impoverished or working class families, especially black and indigenous families. So that's one thing to remember, just what it does. <laughs> now, the other thing, most Americans who learn about the child welfare system probably learn about it from headlines about children who are severely harmed in their homes, even killed in their homes. But these are usually cases where the system has missed those children. So it hasn't protected them at all. It has missed them. And so we can't say that it serves uh, well to protect children, uh, it misses many children. Now, the main children it misses are the, the, all the children in America who don't have the resources they need because of structural inequities, uh, because of poverty. And the U.S. has the highest child poverty rate of any Western nation, and it also takes the most children away of any Western nation. So taking children away from their families does not solve the main problems that children face in America. And in fact, it does the opposite. It, and I'll tell you a couple ways it does the opposite. The system convinces people, like your question implied, that we have something in place that provides for the welfare of children. But that's not true. What it does is uh, it takes too many, but not the vast majority of children who, whose needs are unmet and threatens their families and takes them away, traumatizes them, puts them in a dangerous foster system. And people think that we've solved the problem when we haven't at all. And the other way in which it is in opposition to actually providing for children is that it has created this massive network of reporters, of suspicions of child neglect, uh, teachers and doctors and social service providers that frighten families from seeking care. And so research has shown that many families in these communities that are full of these investigators and caseworkers uh, who know that their children may be taken from them because of the problems they have, they are afraid to reveal the full extent of the problems they have. And so uh, it is a system that actually deters families from getting the services and help 
that they need. And finally, I'll say this is a system that really only, only inflicts this kind of trauma on marginalized families, on impoverished families, on uh, families living in segregated Black neighborhoods, families uh, living in indigenous communities. It barely touches at all uh, middle-class and affluent families, especially white families. Now, we know that children in those families also experience abuse and neglect. They also have medical problems that are not dealt with by their parents. They also have parents who are drug users and who uh, have various kinds of substance disorders. But those children aren't dealt with in this brutal way of taking them away from their families. Their families have the resources to deal with the problems. So this isn't a system that's really about welfare of children. If, if a system really about welfare of children would be working toward ending childhood poverty, it would be working toward better ways of dealing with violence in homes, which this nation does a terrible job of. Uh, it would be treating impoverished children with the kind of care and respect for their families that wealthy children are treated with. But it doesn't do any of those things. And that's why I say it is not a system that's really about child welfare or care or support. It is used as a way of regulating and terrorizing uh, families and taking our attention away from the real needs of children, what would really meet their needs, and instead blaming the most vulnerable parents in this nation for the harms that are actually caused by structural inequities. Yeah. So um, I discovered your book um, through Mother Jones, where you wrote an article about that. And you give some examples there of uh, what happens to families. Would you um, share an example or two with us um, briefly? But I mean, they, sure. they really tell the story. Yes, yes. Well, I'll share a couple examples. I begin torn apart the introduction with the story of a young mother named Vanessa Peoples in Aurora, Colorado. Uh, she was a nursing student who was undergoing testing for leukemia because she had uh, constant anemia and other problems and uh, went to a family picnic one day in the summer to enjoy some time with her family. Uh, she had two little boys ages two and four. And while she was playing with the four-year-old, the two-year-old who was being watched by her cousin traipsed after her cousin when her cousin left the picnic. And so as he's following the cousin into the parking lot, Vanessa sees this and she goes to get him. But before she can get him, a passerby grabbed the little boy and is on her cell phone. Uh, when Vanessa approaches and asks for her son back, the passerby says, no, I've called the police. I'm on the phone with the police. And she refused to give Vanessa her son back until the police arrived. The police arrived. It's finally sorted out. Little boy traipsed away for a minute. That was it. Everything should be fine. But instead, the police officer handed her a ticket for child abuse because her son had traipsed away for a minute. Now, let me point out, that is very unlikely that would have happened if this were a wealthy white mother. You know, in many neighborhoods, we know children run away sometimes and they're brought back, no problem. They don't get involved with the criminal system or the uh, child protection system. But a month later, Someone comes knocking on Vanessa's door, a caseworker, and Vanessa doesn't hear because she's in the basement cleaning up. And the caseworker sees the same little two-year-old in the window and calls police for backup. Uh, three police officers arrive. They enter Vanessa's home, one with a gun pointed at her as she comes up the basement stairs. They refuse to leave her house. They won't let her stay with her own children in the house. Her mother arrives. They monitor the mother with the children. And 
when Vanessa protests, one of the police officers grabs her by the neck. This is all on the body cam. I've watched all these, uh, not exaggerating at all, grab her by the neck. Three police officers jump on her, hog tie her, bring her outside and dislocate her shoulder. And now Vanessa is under a year long surveillance by the child welfare system, all arising from this minor incident that shouldn't have caused any involvement at all. Now, to this day, Vanessa, who was training as a nurse, cannot work as a nurse She's because she is on the state registry as a child abuser. She has trouble finding an apartment because landlords look her up and find that she's on the registry as a child abuser. So her involvement in this system only caused trauma and economic hardship to her family. It has harmed her family. Uh, I'll, I'll mention one other, a woman named Angeline Montabon in New York City, who was experiencing domestic violence from her partner. Uh, her partner had not harmed their little boy, but she wanted help. She saw signs for a domestic violence hotline in the city buses. And one morning she snuck out of bed, uh, went to the bathroom and called the domestic hotline, domestic violence hotline. Uh, the worker she spoke with when uh, the, she mentioned, Vanessa, I'm, I'm sorry, Angeline mentioned she had a little boy, started asking her questions about her address, uh, where the boy lived, how much time he spent with the father, et cetera gave her no assistance whatsoever in uh, getting help for the violence, but instead called the child abuse hotline the next morning, or that same morning, actually, a caseworker shows up. Now, Angeline is entangled in the child welfare system. They take her son away from her, and it takes her five years, even though the partner moved out, she had an order of protection against him, took her five years to get her son back. All of this time, he is in foster care with strangers, moving from home to home, traumatized, harmed by this system, instead of providing the support she needed to take care of her son. She's an excellent, loving mother, but she was blamed for her own victimization by this system, which, and this is routine, that mothers experience saying domestic violence, have their children taken from them, making the situation worse for everybody in the family. And those are just two examples. I could go on and on with children who have been removed on grounds of educational neglect, homelessness. Let me just mention also, because this is such a clear example, when a child is reported by a teacher or a social service worker or a uh, a police officer for being houseless, that a family's living in a shelter and, and someone calls the child abuse hotline on them, that they are not given housing. The children are taken and put in foster care and then the family's told they have to find housing to get their children back. And usually it's, you've got to find housing, you've got to go to parent training classes because obviously you're not a good parent if you are houseless. Uh, you have to go to therapy classes. You have to visit your children who may be placed in separate uh, uh, foster homes. And so uh, you may be required to have supervised visit in visits in different offices in different places. Maybe you don't have a car. How do you get around? How do you get to all these appointments? And nothing is done to actually support the family and help them with the material needs that they have. And if the parents don't comply with every single mandate, that can be grounds to terminate their, their rights and for their family relationship to be completely severed forever. And this happens in the United States more than any other nation in the world that uh, families' rights are severed. And again, they're mainly severed because of allegations of neglect, not abuse, and because the families are simply unable to comply with all the requirements 
imposed on them to get their children back, not because there's evidence the children would, would be abused in the home, simply because of a failure to comply with the state's mandates, which usually have nothing to do with what this family actually needs, because it's based on the idea that something's wrong with the parents, not that they simply need resources, which the state is failing to provide for them. Yeah. <clears throat> My guest is uh, Dorothy Roberts, professor, author. We are talking about her book, Torn Apart, How the Child Welfare System Destroys Black Families and How Abolition Can Build a Safer World. If you want to join the conversation, if you have an experience with the system, uh, please call us, 608-256-2001, extension 9. You can also join us on social media, at Wart Talk, on Twitter, if it still exists today, or um, on a public affair on Facebook. And, and um, Dorothy, I, I personally have some experience with that. Mm-hmm. Uh, when I came to this country, I was very poor. I was married to a uh, disabled Vietnam veteran. When we just arrived in Madison, my um, child, he was still a baby, had um, a uh, swollen eye. And we took him to the ER, and uh, he, he was taken care of. But um, as it turns out, the doctor was Jewish, like me. <laughs> and uh, next thing I know, I get a call from Jewish Social Services, who asked me to come in, which I did. I didn't know what it was about. And um, I have this extremely strange conversation with a social worker about how, you know, our people um, also sometimes beat their wives. And um, I, I had no idea what, what was going on there until I went back home and, and told my then husband about it. And he's like, well, they think I'm beating you up and the kid and... Um, as uh, we kept going, I was I was living in poverty here for my first seven years because of the idiotic um, rules uh, this country has for immigrants. And uh, I remember just touching my kids and trying to find some um, identifying features, like my son had his uh, the. Um, the head, what is it called? You know that. Part. It it yeah. it stayed there for a long time, and I'm like, okay, that's what he's like, and so on. And just because there was always this fear of, um, you know, the school or social workers or someone coming and taking them. I'm I'm white. I'm highly educated, and so somehow we made it through these seven years. And now that I. I'm middle class, I'm of course much older, but I, I know that I wouldn't have had these fears if I weren't uh, poor. And so um, even though I'm white, I, 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 I know what you're talking about and I absolutely acknowledge that if I were black or, or Native American, I would probably be in trouble. Um, just just because of of my financial situation at the time. So anyway, um, having said that, um, there is now this movement to defund the police or whatever, to uh, not send the police when people have mental health crises, instead using social workers. But it is the social workers who are, I mean, they are cops, aren't they? Yes. Uh, Unfortunately, because of the way in which this system, which I call a family policing system, functions, it turns people, professionals who are trained to help and support into agents of the state to report instead of support. 
And so there actually is a, a growing reckoning within the social work profession to grapple with the way in which social workers have been used by the state to investigate, accuse, regulate, terrorize uh, families instead of providing the kinds of supports that many thought they were going to do when they entered the profession. Uh, and so I think we do have to remember when we think about how to transform the way in which criminal law enforcement functions in the United States. And as you pointed out, many are calling for defunding or even abolishing the prison industrial complex that we shouldn't think that that money can go directly into the hands of a, 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 an agency or an apparatus that polices families uh, and that it's going to support. Uh, many of us are calling for a very similar kind of approach to the family policing system, which is to dismantle it and simultaneously build other ways of truly supporting families, truly caring for children, truly preventing violence in homes uh, in ways that the current system doesn't do. And as I've said, actually works uh, counter to that by turning people who could provide support into reporters of their suspicions. Uh, and by the way, I, I thought your story about what happened to you was very telling. And you're absolutely right that the kind of fear you experienced is a fear that is commonplace in neighborhoods where there's intense child welfare agency involvement. So one of the ways in which the system is a different kind of experience in Black communities compared to white communities, except for very uh, those who have very concentrated poverty, which is rare in the United States compared to the concentration of poverty in segregated black neighborhoods. So uh, in segregated black neighborhoods in, in cities around the nation, there this is where most child welfare agency involvement is concentrated. So everybody in the neighborhood is familiar with the child, you know, so-called child protective services. Uh, and so that fear is widespread because people are familiar with it. And that has an impact on the entire neighborhood uh, and therefore also an impact in the residents' relationships with teachers, with doctors, with social workers. You know, this is a structural, this is not just individual bias. This is the way in which the relationship to government so-called service providers, right, is structured by the function of family policing. And I'll just mention one other thing, which is you're, you're right that there is just well-documented evidence of racial bias on the part of teachers and doctors and police officers and caseworkers in how they interpret uh, their suspicions of injuries to children, either physical injuries or neglect. Uh, and uh, Black families are much more likely to be suspected of abusing or neglecting their children based on the exact same kinds of injuries or inadequacies. Uh, and also much more likely to have their children taken from them as well. Yeah. I, um, Excuse me. I want to get to the history, but we do, we do have a caller for you mm -hmm. first. Uh, 608-256-2001, extension 9. Uh, Jeff, you're on the air. No, he hung up. So um, he has a question about the fact that it mm -hmm. seems the problems don't change when the political parties in charge change and that is so true and I actually I remember Clinton you know yeah. I, I was still in fear then and uh, how he changed the uh, um, the welfare system to be so much worse 
That's right. So it, that's that's a very good point. Uh, this is a system that gets bipartisan support because of the liberal idea of child saving. So it, you, you get this bipartisan support of the right wing that wants to use the system as a weapon against marginalized communities. Uh, for example, now we see Governor Abbott in Texas using Child Protective Services to attack uh, families with trans children. Uh, and telling caseworkers they should investigate those families. So uh, it, the right wing has long used uh, the child protection agencies uh, during the civil rights movement, for example, in the South to disrupt uh, organizing and movements for change. And then you have li the liberal approach, which is uh, we want to save these children through government policies that don't really create radical change. They're a substitute for it. Uh, and a great example of that is the Clinton era, uh, three laws, actually, three national laws that came one right after the other. Uh, you mentioned the welfare restructuring law that ended the federal entitlement to government assistance for uh, needy children, uh, for families who were struggling. Uh, it was Clinton who signed the welfare law that for the first time you know, since the New Deal uh, ended the idea that the federal government should provide support for impoverished families to raise children. Uh, and that, of course, was I know it was fueled by these really horrible stereotypes about the black so-called black welfare queens who supposedly had children just to get a welfare check and then wasted the money on themselves. Now, the two other laws, though, 1994, the crime control bill, uh, which was also passed by a Democratic Congress under Clinton at the time, which uh, gave more money to police and prisons uh, and was supposed to control crime. And this was a, an effort by Democrats to look like they were tough on crime. That, of course, was targeted at impoverished Black communities. Uh, and then, relevant to our conversation, although this is all relevant, but more relevant even, a year after the 1996 welfare restructuring law was passed, Congress passed in 1997 the Adoption and Safe Families Act. And this was a law that was supposed to deal with the huge foster care population, which had been expanding since the 1960s, uh, and expanding mainly because of the large numbers of Black children who were being taken from their home. At the time, Black children were four times as likely as white children to be in foster care. And uh, they were the largest group of children. Now, Black children are a minority in America. They, they were the largest group of children in foster care. Almost half of the children in foster care were Black at the time. And... Uh, I mean, which is just astounding. And the idea was, and this came from not only conservatives, but also liberals. Hillary Clinton was a big promoter of this. We have to get these children adopted. And how do you get them adopted? You terminate their parents' rights. And so what ASFA does is speed up the termination of parental rights. States are supposed to petition to and the legal rights of family caregivers to their children with if their children have been in foster care for 15 months out of the last 22 months. You know, that's just little more than a year for children to be in foster care and to meet all of these mandates that the agencies are putting on them. As I said before, parents' rights are terminated when families are unable to comply with these onerous mandates that are put on them. And so not only that, ASFA also provided for what many of us call bounties on children. States get 
extra federal funds for increasing the numbers of adoptions of children from foster care. There weren't these kinds of incentives for reunifying children with their families mm -hmm. out of foster care. And so put all this together, you see in the 1990s, this, you know, I'll just say what I think it is, racist neoliberal approach to the struggles of families, especially black families in America, which is lock them up, take away their children, and don't provide any kind of government support. This was the first time in US history that there was a federal mandate to states to protect, you know, so-called protect children centered on taking them from their families without a simultaneous requirement that states provide income to families to meet their needs. So instead of having a, a a welfare state that provides something, of course, it was never a lot, but provides some support for struggling families, you have the end of that. And the solution is terminate impoverished families' rights and put them up for adoption by more privileged families. I, I mean, can you imagine anything more brutal and unjust than that, but that's what those laws meant. Those three laws passed within a few years of each other. And yes, as, as the questioner pointed out, uh, bipartisan measures, these were democratic, uh, you know, democratic passed and signed laws. Yeah. And so, of course, you um, traumatize kids uh, brutally and for years at the time. And um, then you end up, I mean, not just for that reason, um, of course, just saying racism kind of covers it all in a sense. But you end up with um, a large adult black population in um, prisons. Uh, and and how would you not? I mean, yes. So this is. I mean, we haven't talked about all the harms of the foster system. Yeah, it, let's know, talk about it a only, bit. Yeah, not only are these families torn apart, children traumatized by taking them from their families, from their friends, sometimes from their siblings, uh, from their schools, their classmates, from their neighborhoods. I mean, imagine what that's like. For a child, I can't even imagine being a child who has lived with a family, yes, a struggling family, you know, perhaps there are problems in the home that could be addressed, but instead a child taken away and put in the care of a stranger. Uh, and we know that foster care is traumatic for most children. Many in the United States are moved from one home to the next, so lots of displacement. Uh, then uh, there are high rates of uh, deaths of children in foster care. Uh, the rate of suicide and homicide of children is higher in foster care than in the general population. Uh, and uh, we also know that children who experience foster care have higher rates of PTSD. They have higher, uh, lower chances of graduating from high school and going to college. Uh, and they have a higher risk of being detained in juvenile detention or going to prison. Uh, lower incomes uh, and uh, also other kinds of indicators of, of struggle, houselessness, et cetera. Uh, and that's in general. Now there are also about 30,000 children who age out of foster care every year. And these are children who stay in foster care until they're 18 or 21. For many of them, their parents' rights have had been terminated already, so they've lost 
a legal connection to their parents. Some do not have uh, any longer a relationship with their parents or other family members. And they are at very high risk of houselessness, of impoverishment, of uh, incarceration. Uh, and you know, some people will say, well, that's because these were troubled children who were saved by the system mm. and they're still better off. But as I point out in Torn Apart, foster, the foster system is structured to be harmful to children because they're being placed with strangers very often, uh, because they are often put in group settings, congregate care, not in an individual home, but in a group home or even in what's called a residential treatment center, which is often like a prison. Uh, and they are often abandoned by the, their so-called caregivers or caretakers when they get in trouble. And it's not surprising that children who've been traumatized children who are put, especially in group homes with other uh, people they don't know under stressful situations, you know, will get into a fight, will break a rule. Uh, and very often the people who are caring for them, instead of resolving it in their setting, call the police on them. And so they end up in juvenile detention. There's so much of it that it's called, uh, they're called crossover children or dual involved children. Uh, these are children who are involved both in the foster system and the juvenile justice system. Uh, and most likely they've gone from the foster system into juvenile detention. Uh, and studies also show that children who are in the foster system are at higher risk of getting more severe kinds of penalties when they get involved with the juvenile justice system. Mm -hmm. uh, another path is children who run away from the foster system. Uh, and these are high numbers of children as well who run away. They often end up in the street uh, forced uh, into survival sex work uh, or um, living in, you know, really dangerous, difficult conditions. And the main response of the system when children run away is to call the police on them. And they quickly turn from being these, you know, people, children thought of as victims of child maltreatment into being seen as troublemakers and uh, delinquents uh, who need to be contained by criminal law enforcement. And so these are other ways in which children in the foster system are criminalized. Uh, it, it's, it's a pathway to prison, but it's also criminalizing them because of the way the system is structured. Yeah. And I think um, those who run away, I, I, I'm not a researcher and I, I don't have numbers, but I certainly have heard about a lot of kids in foster uh, care who are physically and sexually abused. And so surely they will run away. Um, let me um, let me say that I, I wanted to go to the history, but we have only 10 minutes and I would like instead to maybe invite you another time just to talk about that, because that's definitely an hour's worth of talk. Yes, I would. I'd be very happy to do that because I think the history is important. It shows us that this is a system designed to terrorize, control, uh, contain uh, from its very inception. So I would be very happy to do that. Great. So let's do that in a couple, three months. And, and for now, for the last 10 minutes that we have, or nine minutes by now, let's talk about um, the movement that um, is happening among mostly poor women, um, most of them, I believe, who have been affected by this. 
and are standing up now and um, saying things need to change. Tell us about who they are, what the movement is, what they want, and have there been changes for the better? Because, you know, like, like our caller said, I'm sure there have been changes in the legal system which um, do the same thing again under a different name. So, yes, yeah. that, that's absolutely right. So there has long been resistance by families, uh, again, especially indigenous and black families against these kinds of incursions and child removal that has been going on for a long time. Uh, and people have stood up, but it's been very hard to organize a movement against it because it's led by families who are struggling to get their children back and they're under intense regulation and anything they do to protest is used against them as evidence that they shouldn't get their children back. So mm. it's very, very hard. But there has been a dramatic increase in organizing even in the last five years, uh, mostly parents, uh, and I would say that black mothers in particular have been at the forefront of this, but not only black mothers, but they're, they're very prominent in the organizing, uh, forming uh, collectives, organizations that are dedicated not to continuing to reform the system because you're right, there have been reforms. The Adoption Safe Families Act was supposed to be a reform. And the reforms tend to just strengthen the system even more, spread the net uh, of families captured by it even wider. And so uh, the movement is to abolish the system. And by that, we mean dismantle the current punitive, terroristic, non-supportive uh, system that we have now that's based on accusations, investigations, blame, punishment, tearing families apart. All of those are the key aspects of the system we have now. And instead, begin to build simultaneously, as we are fighting against that system, simultaneously build a radically different approach for supporting families and caring for children. And that means changing uh, government policies. Uh, so for example, instead of a policy that incentivizes terminating parental rights, have a policy like we saw under COVID that gives checks to families, you know, income. We, you know, we have this evidence uh, from the COVID pandemic that with government assistance in the form of no strings attached income, childhood poverty was drastically reduced in the United States. Now, of course, Congress is saying, well, we're going to end that and go back to the way it was before. But we know we know how to improve the welfare of children just by increasing the income of families. So that would be a better policy, a much more effective policy. But then it also means community-based supports for families, and it also means transformative justice approaches to violence in families, domestic violence, intimate violence, which uh, anti-carceral feminists have been working on for decades, ways that actually get to the root of why violence is going on and addressing that. Uh, we know that punitive approaches don't work. They don't work. And uh, what we need to do is address the reasons for violence in families, figure out ways to hold perpetrators of violence accountable and to heal family relationships. All of that would be so much better for families and children. It would keep children much safer than the system we have now, which is counterproductive. And so uh, now we see uh, organizations like JMAC for Families in New York City, which was founded by Joyce McMillan, whose daughters were taken from her based on an accusation that she was using drugs, no evidence of harm to her children whatsoever. 
but her children were taken from her just based on a positive drug test. Uh, she got them back eventually, and she formed an organization that brings together uh, other system-impacted parents, family defenders. These are lawyers, and this is a movement growing as well in legal services offices around the nation, units that are dedicated to defending families that have been accused of child maltreatment and keeping children at home, uh, telling families about their rights. Uh, we have a Fourth Amendment right against the entry of any state agent into our homes to search our homes. It's not just a protection against police officers, it's protection against any state agent that knocks on your door and wants entry to inspect your home. Most people don't know this. And so a uh, part of JMAC for Families work is advocating for Miranda warnings to family caregivers. Mm -hmm. They know their constitutional rights. Uh, other uh, repealing ASFA is another movement that's going on right now. It just celebrated its 25th anniversary and it's time for it to be repealed. Uh, and so uh, JMAC for Families is an example of bringing together advocates, activists, parents, youth who have been involved, uh, lawyers to create a legislative approach to weakening the power of the family policing system, but also engaging in mutual aid, uh, community-based supports for people to meet their everyday needs, uh, to provide housing, to provide medical care, uh, to provide educational support, all the kinds of things that children and families need. Uh, then there are also uh, growing nonprofit organizations uh, that are dedicated to abolition. There's an organization called the Upend Movement that is headquartered in Houston, Texas, that is uh, co-founded by Alan Detlef, who is the dean of the college, Graduate College of Social Work there. So we mm. have an abolitionist social work dean of at least one uh, uh, social excellent. work school. Yeah, and um, uh, also another important organization, Movement for Family Power in New York City that also has various uh, campaigns. Uh, it's part of the campaign to reveal, repeal ASFA. And these organizations on their websites also have lots of information. Uh, Upend Movement, for example, conducts workshops. I, I mean, Dorothy, I'm, I'm so sorry. We, okay. we do have to end here, but I want to say you are, you are also a fountain of knowledge and information. Um, and people, if you want to learn more, should read Torn Apart, How the Child Welfare System Destroys Black Children and How Abolition Can Build a Safer World by our guest, Professor Dorothy Roberts. Dorothy, we'll talk again in a couple, three months. Absolutely. I would love to talk about the history of all of this and maybe some more about how to end this legacy once and for all. Yes. Thank you so much, Dorothy Roberts. Thanks to uh, Jade and Summer for their help. I'm Esther Dinor. We'll be talking again next week. It's going to be a pledge drive uh, for the holiday or whatever. No, for our birthday. Uh, we'll be talking about Israel and Palestine. Thanks, Dorothy. Bye-bye.